<laughs> well, how is everybody doing this morning? Yeah. Woohoo! Well, we're about to open the word. And you know, you get out of life what you expect of it. If you have zero expectation of, of learning from the word this morning, you will have zero in return. If you have zero outlook of that your week's going to be good, guess what? Your week is probably going to suck. And so it's great for us to get, uh, learn to um, stir up an attitude of expectancy because that's exactly what hope is. It's a confident expectation of good things to come. And so that's a habit that we should foster in our hearts. And that's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks is that we're talking about the heart. And so we should stir up and have our hearts founded on the hope of God. So Father, we just thank you that we have great days ahead. We don't care what the forecast looks like in the natural. We don't care what the governments are saying of what we can expect long term. We thank you. We expect to see your goodness in the land of the living. We expect to see your favor with everyone we come in contact with. We expect doors of opportunity to open before us. We thank you, Lord, for divine connections coming our way, business connections, friendship connections, relationship connections. Father, we thank you that there are good things coming our way. We have a confident expectation of those things, and we thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen. Well, we've been talking about the heart for the last little while, as we just said, and specifically the last two weeks, we've been talking about how the words we speak, they shape our heart and they program our responses. And you know, the dominant things that you think about, the dominant things that you talk about, what you dwell on and where your focus is, that's how you will respond. And you know, I found with myself and, and experience from t talking with others is that we often think we're going to react a certain way when the pressure's on, but how you've been acting will determine how you will be reacting. If you look at what you're doing right now, when the pressure's on, that's what's going to come out. And so we can have a, a fairly certain expectation looking ahead based upon how we have been acting right here right now and so for sometimes that's like yes praise God I know when the pressure's on such and such is come out but vice versa we can say oh is this how I really want to feel when the pressure's on because things get compounded things get pressurized and it just seems like to magnify those things that we felt in the in the moments now and so the words we speak are so important because they are shaping our heart today for tomorrow. They are programming our responses today for tomorrow. And Jesus said in Matthew 12 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. And that a good man out of the good treasure of his heart will bring forth good things. And that an evil man or a natural man out of the natural treasures brings forth natural things. So when the pressure's on, what do you want flowing out of you? Supernatural ability and expectation and provision or just the natural things? Because I think we've seen the natural failings of man exponentially this year in 2020, haven't we? When the pressure's on, I don't want to react as just a man. I want to react as a God-man filled with the Holy Spirit. 
here filled with Jesus down to my very core. I want his supernatural endowment to be flowing out of me because it says he got inside you. And it says that if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he quickens your mortal body. And so whatever the expectation might be of what everyone else thinks, I'm going to go ahead and expect Jesus in my circumstances. I'm going to expect his power and his goodness flowing out of me. So out of the abundance of the heart, our mouth speaks. But one thing we have to understand is the context of this conversation Jesus was having. This was not one of those rosy, merry teaching moments with his disciples. These words were actually spoken while he was rebuking the Pharisees. And he said to them, oh, you brood of vipers, you pile of snakes. How can you, being evil, speak good things? And what he was addressing was how they can be so wicked of heart, evil of heart, but then try to stand up in the synagogues and portray that they were the representatives between God and men. They had left that part. And so what Jesus was really was dealing with was the, the chasm that we often can see between who we are in private and who we are in public. You know, it matters more what you're thinking, what you're talking, what you're dwelling on when no one else is around. Because, you know, that's when the real you is seen. You know, they say that character is what you do when no one else is looking. But the reality is God is always looking. And God is always watching. He knows exactly what's in your heart. You can never surprise him. He always knows what you fed in. And so Jesus was dealing with that chasm that can be between who we try to be and who we actually are in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment, when no one's watching, when we're in our room, when we're, the doors are shut. That's really what matters the most because that's when your heart is open to you. And so Jesus said that out of the abundance of our hearts, the mouth speaks from those moments. And in two verses later, he says in verse 37 that for by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Now we can look at this in the overall context of salvation where he says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and you shall be saved. And that good, it's good, that 100% applies to this. But we also know that Paul told us in Colossians 2.6 that as you have begun in Christ Jesus, so continue in. As you have entered into salvation with a belief in the heart and a confession on your lips, you should live each day with a belief in your heart and a word on your lips. And so the New Living says that for your word, the words you say will either acquit you or they will condemn you. What are your words letting go of and what are your words grabbing hold of? Because our words are charting our course. And I was specific to change that. This morning I was reading through my notes and I said, your words are charting your course. And I said, you know what? i got to change that to our because I need just as much of a reminder of that this morning as everyone else. Our words. This is not something that is just for you. This is something that I have to apply every moment of every day. It's charting our course. And that's what James told us. He said, you know, we have great ships and they're turned by the pilot by a little rudder. It's turning us in the directions we want to go. And there's some directions I don't want to go. You know, you ever have that? You know, like I remember when I lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
Um, there was a specific part of the city that was like, you know, you, you don't go there. It's not a good place for white Canadians, if you want to put it that way. There was like, you know, they told us when we sat down in orientation, they're like, you know, the streets between here, why don't you just avoid those ones? And so one day we were driving, and I took a wrong turn, and I realized where I was, and I was like, oh my goodness, I don't want to be here. And there are places in your life that you know you don't want to be there, but your words have aligned you with them. It's taking you in that direction. And on the same side of it, you can take God's words, put them on your mouth, and drive yourself to where you want to be. Drive yourself into the land of blessing, into the land of fruitfulness, into the land of more than enough. Rather than attaching myself to words of lack and doubt and unbelief, I can drive myself into the promised land. You know, Proverbs 13, 2 says, A man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth. You know, well is relative as to what you're eating. I want to be eating good things in my life. It says, But the soul of an unfaithful feeds on violence. Next verse says that he who guards his mouth preserves his life. But he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. I think it's the amplified version that says that he who chatters on without thinking leads to ruin. And sometimes we need to have that point where we just go, mouth, you got to stop talking right now. I'm going to line you up with where I want to go. You know, Proverbs 21, 23 says basically the same thing. He says, whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. That's a good one there to meditate. When you shut your mouth up, you keep yourself from certain problems that you didn't want to walk into in the first place. And that's why I, I go back to Psalm 141 that David said, Oh Lord, put a guard on my mouth that I won't slip my way into destruction. You know, put a guard. He's like crying out to God saying, Help me in this. And God is always faithful. He's merciful. As we said last week, you know, sometimes you just got to say crop failure. You know, let the field die. I've planted things I don't want. Go ahead and let's just burn it down. And so this morning, I want to take a look at an example of this on display before us. And there's nobody better to look at in the Bible than the children of Israel. They really lived and died by this concept. And so if you're with, following in your Bibles, you can turn to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. Grab a little bit of liquid. A little dry this morning. Numbers chapter 14. And now for context. Context is very important. You need to know why they're saying what they're saying and what they've just come through. And so the children of Israel have miraculously been pulled out of Egypt. You know, there was the ten plagues that let them walk out of Egypt, out of slavery, and it says that they, they knocked on the doors, and they just said, hey, can I have your gold and your silver? And the Egyptians were like, here, take it, just leave. And so they left the land of Egypt with the wealth of Egypt, but even more than that, it says that there was not feeble, one feeble or weak one among them. Now, that's a hard thing to say about a several million strong group of people, that there's not not one feeble and not one weak one among them. They came out of the land of Egypt with God's preservation and God's blessing upon their back and walked out into the wilderness. 
They find themselves at the Red Sea. The Egyptian army changing their mind, running them down from behind, saying, like, what have we done? We just let our workforce go. We need to go get them back. And so they're faced with the Red Sea in front of them and the army beside them, and God miraculously splits the sea, and they walk across on dry land. Just a little bit later, they find themselves in the middle of the desert, and what do we know about deserts? They're a little dry, a little parched place. There's not a lot of water And so the people began to complain, and they said to Moses, why have you brought us out here to die? And so Moses splits the rock, and water comes out of the rock, and they are able to drink. And it's just miracle after miracle. It says about a month and a half in, God had to provide manna for them every day. Why is that? Because there was only so much they could carry when they left Egypt. That's about how long it would have taken for their provisions to run out. And so God turns things around and he rains down manna on top of them. And every day they go up and they, have, they can pick their daily's worth of food up off the ground. Wouldn't that be great? You didn't even have to go to the store. It's on your front door. But of course that wasn't good enough for them and they started to complain once again. And they said, oh, we, just, uh, we so want some meat. And so God had a flock of quail about knee deep just crash themselves in their camp. And they were able to eat meat again. And so they've gone through years in the wilderness. And they're now on the doorstep of the promised land that God has been leading them to. And they choose 12 spies, one from each tribe, to go in and investigate the land. And when those 12 spies came back, two of them said, man, This is a great land God has brought us to. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, all the provision that we need is there. This is awesome. And then the other ten said, yeah, that's great, guys, but we saw giants. We saw walled cities. We saw people whose armies are great. We can't do this. And those ten people swayed the majority of the Israelites to then begin to complain against God. You know, you got to be careful about the majority. They say that the majority rules, but the majority can also lead you into the land of death. And it's not always going to be convenient to follow God, to stand on his promises. And there may come a time in your life when you're looking around at everybody else and nobody else believes like you. My only thing I want you to look at is what has God said? Because it doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what people do. His is the only opinion that matters. And so we had 10 spies say we can't do it, and we had two that said that we can. And here's what happened. Numbers 14, verse 1, it says, So all of the congregation, they lifted up their voices and they cried, and the people wept that night. They were so moved by those 10 spies' negative response that there was weeping and wailing in the camp that night. And this is what they said. And the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. And if only we had died in this wilderness. Now think about that. What is the difference between dying in Egypt, dying in the wilderness, or dying fighting for the promise? If you're dying anyways, why not doing it in the pursuit of the promises of God? 
And so many times we can look at it and say that there's no way out. We've boxed ourselves into a corner. We should have just died in Egypt. We should just die here in this wilderness. I'd say, go ahead and pursue the promise because he who promised is faithful. And it says that all the promises of God are yes and amen. So I would rather die pursuing the promise than die sitting on my butt doing nothing. And so they said, oh, if only we had died in Egypt, and if only we had died in this wilderness, we need to know something about a wilderness. And it's the Hebrew word here, it's the word midbar, and it means an uninhabited land, and in a, basically a wilderness. But the interesting thing about wilderness is, do you know what the root word for midbar is? It's the word devar, which means to speak, to declare, to converse, to command, to promise, and to warn. The way in and out of your wilderness is in your mouth. The way in and out of your promised land is in your mouth. The only way you get stuck in a wilderness is because you've chosen to attach yourself to it with your words. And how do we know that they had attached themselves to that wilderness? Because the word they used. It said the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. In the King James Version, it's the word murmur, and it means to lodge, to stop over, and to remain. Their complaints, come on, their complaints caused them to set up camp in a land they didn't want to be in. Your words of complaint will cause you to camp where you don't want to live. Now think about this. Why did David say in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You may find yourself in a tight spot or a tough situation, but don't set up camp there. Go through Keep on walking. Keep on trusting that you are with the shepherd, the one who provides, the one who makes you to lay down in green pastures beside still waters. And if you haven't found yourself in green pastures and still waters being protected by his rod and his staff, keep on walking because you haven't got to the destination. And so the children of Israel chose to murmur and complain and it made them set up camp in the wilderness. And you know what happened to every one of those complainers? They died in the wilderness. So choose where you're going to have your funeral. And the first way to lessen our problems is to stop contributing to them by what we are agreeing to. Because do you know, Amos 3.3 tells us, can two walk together unless they are agreed? You don't walk in the things of God unless you agree with him. And so if you're not walking in the things of God, you have to ask yourself, what am I in agreement with? Am I in agreement that this is a crappy year? Come on. Am I in agreement that this is a really bad time to be alive? No. I'm in agreement with God that I will see his blessings right where I am. That every day when I wake up, I am daily loaded with his benefits. That I will not forget that he has forgiven all of my sins. That he has healed all of my diseases. I will bring myself into agreement with what God has said about the situation. Rather than putting my finger into the wind and finding out how it's blowing that day, I tell the wind which way to blow. 
And isn't that what Jesus did when they were out in the, on the Sea of Galilee and the storm came up and the disciples said, we're going to die? He said, why? Peace. And so whatever you want to be speaking into your life, find out what it is you want to have first. Find out what God has said about you because the only way to agree with God is to find out what He actually thinks. And that's why a daily diet of His Word and His peace and His love is so beneficial to understand what it is He's actually said. Because uh, He won't be the one changing His mind. And we've probably all heard this scripture at one point in Numbers 23, 19. It says, God is not a man that He should lie nor the son of man that he should repent or change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? Now, we've probably all heard that verse, but do we understand the context in which it was spoken? It takes place in the story of Balak and Balaam. Now, who is Balak and who is Balaam? Balak is the king of Moab. And so we saw in Numbers 14 where the ten spies said, we can't do this. And the two spies said, we can do this. Now, fast forward an entire generation. All of those complainers are dead. The only ones who are left are the ones that said, we can do this. And they go into the land, being led by one of those spies by the name of Joshua. And he's taking them from city to city. And they are rolling over nation after nation and taking the land just as God had promised. So to look in the perspective, the complainers were wrong. When they said, we can't take the land, they were wrong. When Joshua and Caleb said, we can take the land, they were right. And so fast forward the generation, they're doing exactly what God said they could do. They are doing exactly what Joshua and Caleb said they could do. Don't let other people convince you that your blessing is not true. And so here they are in the midst of doing what God said they could do. And the Balak, the king of Moab, he looks at what's going on and he said, oh crap, I'm next. They've taken out Jericho, they've taken out Ai, they've taken out all these places, and Moab's like, this is not looking good for us at all. So they find themselves a prophet by the name of Balaam. And so first, Balak sends word to Balaam and says, come and curse these Israelites, and he says, no. And Balak says, come on, I will give you a house full of gold and silver and whatever you want, and he says, No, be careful who you align yourself with. Balaam's on the right path here. And so finally God says, you know what, Balaam? Just go with him. And so there's other stuff that goes on in the story, but basically Balaam shows up before Balak. And the interesting thing is Balaam is not even an Israelite, but yet he's still serving God, which means he's a picture and a type of us to come. We are not of the, of the seed of Abraham from a natural sense, but we are from the seed of Abraham by faith. And same way Balaam is, he doesn't, he's not a child of the Israelites, but he still knows what God to serve. And so in Numbers twenty two thirty eight 38, it says, and Balaam said to Balak, look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power 
at all to say anything. The word that God puts in my mouth, that must, I must speak. So Balaam, very specific when Balak, when he gets there, saying, just so you know, Balak, I know what you want me to do, but I'm only going to speak what he tells me. That's some good wisdom for us. Of all the things that you could say, say what he said. And so Balak is fully aware of the boundaries that Balaam has put on this. And so the next verse says, Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering, and I will go, and perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I'll tell you. And so he went to, the de- to a desolate site, and God met Balaam. And he said to him, I've prepared seven altars, and I've offered each altar uh, a bull and a ram. And then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. You know, when you're in a time of need, the Lord will always put a word in your mouth. Because you don't need the whole thing all the time. You need the word that's applicable to right now. And that's why Kenneth Copeland has been saying for years, one word from God will change your life. Because you need to ask, God, what, what is today? What's my word for today? What's my word for this situation? And let it be yourself become immovable from that. And so the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and he said, Return to Balak and thus you shall speak. And so he returned to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering and all of the princes of Moab. So we need to understand, here comes Balaam back down the mountain, and Balak's waiting for the word. He's wanting Balaam to curse the Asians. He's got all of his princes behind him just waiting. Come on, let's do this. We, we don't want to fight them, so come curse them for us. And so Balaam is looking for the show. You know, come on, you, you pump up my guys by telling them that Israel's going to fail. And he says, and he took up his oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And from the top of the rocks I see him. Meaning when he's looking down at Israel, he's seeing God. When people will look down at you in, the, in hindsight, they will see God in your situation. They will see how God intervened on your behalf. And he says, and from the hills I behold him. And there, a people dwelling alone and not reckoning itself among the nations. And who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number one-fourth of Israel, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. Meaning, I see where Israel's going. They're going to take this land. It'll be a land of blessing. And I would rather die like them than live like you, Balak. And then Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies. And look, you have blessed them bountifully. You spoke of their increase. I want them to decrease and leave. Come on. What is your problem? And so he answered and he said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? What are we talking about? We're talking about the words that you allow to set your path. We're talking about the words that determine where you choose to live. We're talking about the words that are charting the course of where you're going. In verse 13 he says, Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place. 
from which you may see them, and you shall see only their outer part of them. So Balak's idea here is now, well, let's get a little further away so you can't see what type of person they are. Let's look at them from way high up, and then perhaps you can, uh, won't be so scared, and you can, you know, maybe curse them for me. And he said, uh, you shall not see them all, and curse them for me there. And so he brought him to the field of Zophim and the top of Pisgah, and he built seven altars, and he offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Then the Lord met Balaam, and he put a word in his mouth, and he said, go back to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And so he came to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab are behind him again. And he said, Balak said to him there, what has the Lord spoken? As if the Lord would change his mind. And he said, then he took up the oracle and he said, rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, you son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie. Meaning the first time was enough. He said what he said, he meant what he meant, and now line yourself up with it. He said he's not the son of man that he should repent or change his mind. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I can't reverse it. So this is something you need to understand Everyone else's words about you mean nothing, but your words and God's words about you mean everything. Everything. It doesn't matter what they call you. It doesn't matter what they say you can and can't do. God's words matter. And he has blessed you. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every... Everyone say every. every. Meaning he left nothing on the shelf. Yes. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Every blessing. So God has already spoken, Bless John. Bless Doreen. Bless Tori. He has spoken... No one can change that except for you. Do you know how the story continues? Balak goes on to try and get him to curse him for four times. And then he gives up. And you know what he does instead? He realizes, I can't change God's mind. I can't change his blessings. So I need to change the nation of Israel. And he sent his young women in amongst them to marry into them. And within one generation, they had fallen off the horse. They'd let go of their blessings. Because you can't be changed from outside, but you can change from the inside out. That's why your heart is so important. What are you conditioning your heart to say today? Because it's leading you to either your victory or your downfall tomorrow. That's why James said that out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. And my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Meaning if God has blessed, we should align our mouths with his. So should we not as children of God have better sense than Balak? 
So last week, and I want to start coming in for a landing with this, we talked about Abram and what he believed about God. And what it says in Romans 4, 17, it says, He believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. This is not Abraham's perspective. This is what God does. He takes situations that other people are say it's hopeless, it's dead, it'll never be, and he breathes life into them by calling it the way he wants it and not the way he sees it. And it said that who, contrary to hope, believed in hope. And that's where we started today. Hope is a confident expectation of good things to come. In Abraham's story, there was a plenty of opportunity for him to say, ah, this is never going to happen. Old men and old women don't have kids. They don't become the father of many nations when they don't have any kids. God changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham so that he would continually speak, I'm the father of many nations, I'm the father of many nations, I'm the father of many nations. But do you know that from the time the name was changed to the fulfillment of the blessing was 13 years? There was plenty of opportunity for Abram to say, okay, God, I give up, I stop. And so let's take a look that 12 years into that change. So one year before the blessing. In Genesis 18, 9, we find God shows up on Abraham's doorstep. He's standing out under the tree out in front, and Abraham sees him, and he's like, guys, can you stop for a bit of bread and some meat? I'll kill the, kill the calf, we'll have a good meal, and we can talk. And God says, go ahead and do it. And so as they're sitting and eating, in verse 9, God turns to Abraham and says, Abraham and says, where's Sarah, your wife? And she said, she's inside the tent. Then one of them said, I will return to you about the this time next year. And your wife, Sarah, will have a son. And Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. So she's inside the tent. They're out front of the tent under the tree. And she's got her ear up against the tent, listening to what's going on. And the man says, when I come back next year, Sarah will have a son. And it says, Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time. And Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and says this listen to what she says how could a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure especially when my master my husband is also so old so here's the situation we have going on with abraham and sarah abraham is saying I'm the father of many nations, and Sarah is saying, this is never going to happen. <laughs> and this is an important picture for us looking into marriage and relationships. Get on the same page. Yeah. You are a united front together. And so she laughs and says, this is not happening. I am old, worn out woman. Like I don't care how old you are, don't say that. And the Lord said to Abraham, outside the tent, not with Sarah, because he knows, he hears, and he, it doesn't matter where you are, as we said, whatever you do in private, he sees, he hears, he knows what's in your heart. And he says, why did Sarah laugh 
Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah realizes that he can hear her, whether he can actually hear her or not, and says she was afraid, and she denied it and said, I didn't laugh, I didn't do it. But the Lord said, no, you did laugh. And in this moment, Sarah has an opportunity. She can continue to tie herself to, I'm an old woman and I'm not going to have a baby. Or she can change her heart. And thank God for the sake of the story, she did. And it says the Lord kept his word because he never changes his mind. And he did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant. She gave birth to the son for Abraham in his old age. And this happened at just the time God had said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac, which literally means laughter. And Abraham was about 100 years old when Isaac was born. When laughter came into the house, he was about 100 years old. But listen to Sarah's change in heart and words. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter, and all who hear about this will laugh with me. Sarah started the process laughing at the situation, and now she's saying, why don't you come and laugh with me about God's goodness, his ability to come through, his faithfulness to all generations, that what he has spoken, he will fulfill, and what she says next is so great. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby, yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age? I want to ask you a question in closing this morning. What will be your who would have said? When you look at your life, when you look at the blessings that God has promised you, what are you going to look back in a year at and said, I'm really glad I kept my faith and my words on God. And say, guys, come and rejoice with me. Come and laugh with me. Let's rejoice in God's faithfulness. What will be your, who would have said that I'm now doing this? Who would have looked back and saw that I'd be standing where I'm standing right now? And the only one who can answer those types of questions is you. What are you willing to believe God? What are you willing to trust Him in? What are you willing to bring yourself into agreement with Him over? Because He is always faithful and he won't change his mind. Now maybe you're watching us this morning via the internet and you haven't even made Jesus the Lord of your life. That's the most important agreement that you can make. He said that he'll save you to the uttermost and that he'll take all of you and care nothing about your sin. He'll wipe it away. And he just said, call upon me and I will save you. So we would love to pray with you this morning. Come on church, let's say, God, I ask for Jesus. I receive him into my heart. I receive him into all of me. I thank you that you hold nothing back. And Jesus, I call you Lord. Amen and amen. 
If you prayed that prayer with us, we would love for you to get in contact with us and get you hooked up with a good church in your area and get some resources into your hands. If you're in the Smith Falls area, we just say welcome home. Come on and check in. We would love to walk this journey of agreement with you. But guys, what will be your who would have said moment? Well, it's offering time. If you would love to give with us this morning, you can do so at wordchurch.ca forward slash give or the baskets at the back. But as we've been talking about our words and our confession, let's go ahead and make one this morning. That this is my seed. I sow it into the kingdom of God. Seed, do what you do best. Grow. I sow you to spread the gospel. I sow you to strengthen believers. I sow you to go where I cannot. I sow you to grow, multiply, and return in great supply. Harvest, I receive you. Lack, I resist you. His supply is sufficient, and I walk in abundance of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are blessed. Have a wonderful week, and choose your words wisely.